0: One basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free anytime you want it in iTunes and at theJazzSession.com, where you'll also find the mailing list and the Facebook group and the Twitter feed and the uh, collectible edible foods. And I think there's a now a, um, a Jazz Session chain mail shirt. And also, what's the newest item that we just added? I'm trying to remember. I think it was a, uh, a pair of branded uh, Jazz Session uh, Hashi uh, chopsticks that you can use. So those are all available, uh, except for a few of the things, uh, at thejazzsession.com. Particularly all of the products that I just invented, which are not available. However, the lovely, the very lovely Jazz Session plush toy is now there. It's a plush toy in my likeness, sure to delight any small child. Uh, Today on the show, it is my pleasure to uh, talk once again to John Ellis. He's been on the show before, uh, talking about his first album with his band Double Wide. And the new album is called Puppet Mischief. And oddly enough, I caught up with John really just down the street from my house at a place called Red Square Club in Albany, New York. And uh, John was kind enough uh, when they got in from their... Tour of the Northeast to uh, sit down with me for a while and talk about the record and much more. Puppet Mischief opens with this tune called "Okra and Tomatoes." <laughs> guest is uh, John Ellis. He's got a new CD with his band Double Wide called Puppet Mischief. And uh, it's great to have you back on the show, man. Thanks hey, for being here. Hey,
1: great, to have, it's great so, to have me. Wait, wait, <laughs> yes, no. Let's start again. That's what I said. <laughs> wait a second. That's what happens when you've been on the road that long. Yeah. I've been doing all the driving. I'm a little bit delirious. Seriously? Wow. <laughs>
0: there, there's no, there's no uh, wheel, steering wheel sharing in the uh, Double Wide organization?
1: I'm the only one that can be trusted to, to uh, crash the car. <laughs> So far, so good. Very nice. Uh, well, first, before we uh, do
0: the you know the meat of the interview, uh, let me just say that uh, last year when I was raising money for uh, fighting cancer, I asked everyone who'd ever been on the show to uh, donate stuff, and a small group of people did, and you were one of them, and I just wanted to, to thank you right here on the show for, for stepping up and helping out. That was my much pleasure. appreciated.
1: Absolutely my Thanks pleasure. Yeah, I was happy to do it.
0: So um, the new record, Puppet Mischief, uh, is is fantastic and once again points out to me just what an incredible ear for melody um, you have I mean I think reviewers instantly go toward kind of the grooves and the the rhythmic foundation of what's happening but the album is so melodic can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of where melody falls in your, your compositional scheme
1: um wow I think melody is a hard one I mean I definitely grew up exposed to a lot of folk music I guess and, you know church music and uh, melody is definitely um, I love things that are catchy. I love things that catch the attention. I love uh, songs that have a narrative quality. So, and I love drama, and I, I love uh, the relationship between emotion and, and melody. So I've been thinking a lot about that, sort of how to write things that are symbolic of moods. And um, I did a big collaborative piece last year with a playwright that got me thinking a lot about that because I had words, and I was trying to make, make the words... And the the moods that um, were associated with the words have melodies that um, would be evocative of those same kind of of moods. So, I don't know, it's interesting. A melody is sort of uh, something that kind of comes, I think. You know, you try to get yourself into a place where the melodies can happen.
0: You, uh, I definitely want to talk about the Ice Siren, which is the thing that you were just uh, Mm. referring to, right? So, Mm. um, maybe do that a little bit later on. Um, One thing that this album uh, adds... um, Uh, from the last double-wide record is uh, trombone and harmonica. We talked a little bit about that, the decision to bring those guys in, which was a great one, as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah, well, actually, that partially came from an outside push. Um, I had a a gig in St. Bart's that I've been fortunate enough to do quite a few times. There's a festival down there in the the winter, and uh, they wanted to, it was maybe the 25th anniversary of this thing, and they wanted to have double-wide play, but they wanted to have double-wide even bigger, which initially i was like why are you messing with my concept you know this is what do you mean bigger the double wide is a thing it's a it's a perfectly conceived sound and then after a while i was like okay well if i was going to add instruments to this kind of wacky sounding thing what, what instruments might give me some more colors to work with and might integrate into the spirit of it and uh came up with trombone and harmonica um and then when we did the first, when I wrote a few things and we did the did the gig, it, it was immediately like, wow, this is amazing! I want to try to write a whole album's worth of stuff for this. So it just kind of came together.
0: And that uh, tenor sax, trombone, and harmonica is the front line of war, right? I think that's of war, uh, maybe. I think that's the case, yeah. I think maybe. That's, that's their horn section. I think. It's
1: also uh, from from Charlie Hunter's band that oh, I was in for a while. Right. Yeah, it was yeah. a, a, a which I wasn't that conscious of at the time, but I did, I guess, kind of steal his front line from the Right Now Move era. Yeah.
0: So when you when you heard those elements integrated into the band, did you think of new things you could do with it that just hadn't hadn't been there before because of the the new voices
1: it? Sure, I, uh, I'm very interested in orchestration. I'm very interested in color, colors of instruments, writing melodies as we were talking about before, specifically for instruments with the color of those instruments in mind, and then with the overall narrative of the piece in mind. And so yeah, the, I mean, harmonica and trombone are such such different colors and. Um, occupy such a different space in the music and uh, yeah give me access to different nooks and crannies and places to turn uh, when writing and when orchestrating a song
0: Does uh, does the presence of the harmonica um, does it change the way dynamically the band has to interact?
1: Not really, actually. I mean, we are obviously very dependent on sound systems. Uh, he he needs the most help on stage, so if there's a situation where um, where we don't have help, then if certainly it would. But you know, I don't know. Actually, Gregoire Murray too. He he's the guy on the record. He he had these harmonicas made that are just like the beefiest, fattest tenor saxophone kind of harmonicas you've ever heard in your life so i don't know it it, it doesn't seem like we have to worry about it too much you have to have a good sound system you know
0: so besides being really fun to say and leading to a great album cover does the name puppet mischief come from any place
1: um well who doesn't like mischievous puppets (laughs) yeah i like to say i mean i guess being really fun to say is is the is the crux of it I mean is the center of what it is and I like to think of this band as being serious but also incredibly fun uh Mike Moreno is the the person that I stole those words from we were in Brazil together and he we were just clowning and he said the words puppet mischief and I just died laughing and uh Somehow it snapped into place I mean, it's, this band has a certain character And something about Puppet Mischief just immediately Was like, that has to be a part of Double Wide Somehow Puppet Mischief fits us You know, a big, raucous Fun, you know But also mischievous kind of kind of band um, So I don't know, every once in a while that kind of thing happens I, I try to be In tune with things like that That people say to me that that resonate Really strongly for some reason or another And so that's kind of what happened. Mike said it, and I stole it. And now he's trying to get 10%. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is not the most important question I'm going to ask, but where do the puppets actually come from for the cover of
1: um, the There's film? a woman named Gretchen who works for... Uh, this, she's at this puppet, I don't know, school, puppet workshop called Drama of Works, and they're on Dean Street. And uh, I think they're called something like... Uh, she's going to kill me. They're called like, you know, who's its or what's its... Something like that. And they, they do something at FAO Schwartz, I think, where people can custom make their own puppets. And I think Gretchen makes a lot of puppets for And they're sold at, at FAO Schwartz Custom. So anyone can get a puppet made in your likeness, if you want. <laughs> so th- these ones weren't made for us. They just were ones that uh, I went to the studio, and uh, to her uh, studio, and they were there. And so they just seemed to fit what I was looking for.
0: Nice. Uh, has you've referred several times now to kind of double wide having a, a character or an, or an identity mm. um, that that seems like a pretty important thing like a kind of a rare thing to be able to get people together who then establish a collective identity
1: mm. yeah it's important for me to have something like that to think about and to write for and uh it's kind of therapeutic for me to play in this band this band is 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 funny it's i mean I laugh when I play with this band and i there 's not a whole lot of a lot of the jazz that I end up playing and and love to play by the way is sort of overwrought and serious you know and and a lot of the jazz i've made in the past has also been like that but um there's something about just the the playfulness and the, the having the sousaphone and just just having these sort of, sort of raucous sounding instruments that um allow another character to come forward and 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 allow a lot of humor to come forward and I think I think because at least for me, there's not a whole lot out there exactly like this. To, to my knowledge, there's not any band with exactly this instrumentation doing this. Um, so the instruments themselves are important. And then, yeah, the, the sort of playfulness of the, of the music, uh, I think, kind of stands out and ends up being kind of therapeutic. And, and hopefully we'll have some resonance for people as something different.
0: Will you tell folks who's in the band?
1: Sure. It's, uh, well, Gregoire Moray, as we spoke about, is playing harmonica. Alan Ferber is playing trombone. Uh, Matt Perrine is the sousaphone player. Um, Jason Marsalis is playing drums Brian Coogan is playing organ And of course I'm playing saxophone And a little bit of bass clarinet
0: And um, I can't remember if we talked about this The first time you were on or not But um, am I right in saying that it was Playing with Matt initially That made you think, oh I need a band kind of built around the sound of the sousaphone. The
1: yeah, it, it, it was. Uh, it, it sort of related to the puppet mischief idea. It's just uh, something about this one particular gig kind of just stuck with me. It just it just resonated with me is the best way I can say. And it had to do with uh, both the, how different it felt to have sousaphone playing in the bass function in the music, and then particularly Matt himself, who is a, you know, what can we say, he's a freak? That's a good word to describe him. <laughs> he's just a very—I mean—he's an incredibly gifted and fast-thinking musician who's very musical and happens to be happens to have an incredible grasp of the bass function in music, and then plays the sousaphone uh, in that context. But not only idiomatically in New Orleans-oriented music, but can can really climb outside of that. Has a huge sense of humor. You know, he's just sort of seems to be made to play that instrument in a way. He's also an excellent bass player. Um, so there's just sort of something about him that uh, I think is extremely special. The Sousa an unusual instrument in the first place, unusual in jazz in this way. And then for someone to have these kinds of gifts, I think, is quite unusual. So he, that was something I certainly filed away and felt like there would be an opportunity to do something interesting and unique with him because of the, the, what he brings to the table.
0: 2009 was a a pretty good year for you Yeah, Uh, I mean it seems like every place I turned there you were the (laughs) the pop world the hip hop world the jazz world Uh, (laughs) uh, did you I mean have you had a chance to kind of like take a 30,000 foot view and say wow 2009 was (laughs) was right"?
1: kind of it's funny actually uh, my parents they, they like to write a Christmas letter and usually they do it like a family Christmas letter this is a kind of a great little family ritual and this year we got together for Christmas, and they they, they said, well, you know, why don't you write the little part about what you did, you know, what your year was like? And it's funny when I st- that was the first time I sort of had that thirty thousand foot view where I was like, wow, there was a lot of great opportunities this year. But honestly, for the most part, you're just kind of buried in it. You know, there's a there's always a lot of deadlines and a lot of um, just thinking about what the next thing is. Um, but yeah, 2009 was very, very fortunate. Yeah, very fortunate. Lots of cool stuff.
0: Uh, among the things you did, um, kind of maybe outside the norm, were things like working with Most Deaf and Sting. And how, how do how do opportunities like that come your way? How did that happen?
1: Both of those came from just uh, sort of out of the blue, I would say, just from connections that I've made over the years and people that I've made music with. And I guess people that we have a lot of mutual admiration. Um, Bob Saden, who produced Sting's record. Um, was a mentor of mine and still is an important mentor of mine uh, I took his class at the New School which is an incredible class of you know helping you interpret and listen to classical music sort of from a jazz musician's perspective and also just sort of breaking down all those barriers that define music as jazz and classical and whatever else and he's a fantastic motivated guy who's really really excited about music so he, he produced that record and sort of at the last minute when the record was more or less done and they were just doing adding little things or seeing maybe we can improve this or that he was kind enough to, to lobby to sort of get me on it, and I came and practically snuck a few things on a couple of tracks that ultimately Sting was happy with, bass clarinet things. And then the most deaf thing was uh, you know, my good friend Robert Glasper, who I went to school with and played on his album. He um, he recommended me, I guess they probably needed someone last minute, and I just ended up going and playing with him at the Newport Jazz Festival, so... A lot of those things were just, just incredibly good fortune of having pe- good fortune of having people think think of me at, at those times when they were looking for something.
0: It seems like I've been asking people this question a lot recently, but I guess I've interviewed a bunch of artists recently who do a lot of work outside of their own projects. Mm. And so, one of the things I'm interested in is when you're working in somebody else's project, and either when it's like a, a session for hire or you're playing regularly with someone else's band, mm-hmm. are you are you consciously trying to maintain some kind of Musical identity, or are you just letting that go, kind of in service of whatever is happening with the music that you're that you're playing?
1: Yeah, I actually don't. I don't concern myself that much with those types of things, to be honest. My, my primary concern is what is the music that I'm playing and how to make it sound the best, and what what is my function within that music, and if that requires me to do more or less, or uh, it's mostly I mostly focus on those kinds of things. You know, tension and release, and you know, narrative and so as far as like having a musical identity for for me personally, I think that that's a kind of a mistake to think too much about that. I feel like if you trust yourself and you trust and you listen to music and you love the music that you're playing and you allow it to come through you, then, then, uh, you don't have to worry too much about your identity. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I honestly, in some ways don't think that much about it when I am doing my own things either. I mean, I'm just mostly just trying to make music that sounds beautiful. And the identity part is, uh, I feel like for, that's kind of for other people to worry about, you know what I mean? It's just like, I just kind of want to worry about make the, the act of making it and participating in it. And if, if it happens to sound unique, then luckier, you know, luckier for me. <laughs>
0: One thing you said, I think it was about the making of Puppet Mischief, um, was that many of the things you like most uh, on your albums are things that you didn't make happen, but that you watched happen. Sure. Um, will you talk a little bit more about that and about kind of how you operate in these record uh, recording sessions?
1: Yeah, um, I think the best thing you can do if you're if you're able is to sort of facilitate some kind of uh, spot where people can. Respond to the music that you've written, but still find a place to to be themselves and then and this also try not to control it so much such that that the little magical, exciting, unpredictable things can still happen, and that you you can be in a space to to, to not miss them, you know not lose them because a lot of times that's where that's where kind of the best stuff happens and you know it's hard I think with the more instruments involved. The harder that becomes because it, it uh, to have a to have a concept that's focused when you have a lot of instruments and that that is writing based at least that's really where the music is actually quite composed. I think it becomes sometimes more difficult to have a, a openness to it. But you know, in, in putting together Puppet Mischief, for example, a lot of that is I have these songs and I don't really know exactly how we're going to improvise on them. Really, it's just like I. So it's sort of about mood, being sensitive to mood, being sensitive to orchestration, and then sort of trying to be like, well, what what will achieve the, 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 the coolest presentation or the most satisfying, you say, pr- presentation of a, of a song? And then, then you make choices like this, the, you know, opening up sections. And and a lot of that is, of course, trial and error and just listening and seeing, seeing what's working. And, you know, some, sometimes someone will have a, one of the musicians will have a really strong uh, relationship to something or they'll come up with something that has a lot of character, so then you feel like that's there you try to give them that space to do that and, uh, yeah it's it's hard to say so much of those kinds of decisions are just creating an, an environment to allow those kinds of things to grow and then just being aware enough to catch catch them and guide them yeah, yeah
0: it sounds it sounds exciting to do it that way rath- it's fun rather yeah. than being incredibly regimented about you do this now and
1: yeah that Yeah, Or especially in advance. I mean it's also good to have strong, strong inclinations, strong intuitions when you hear things and, and trying to trust those, those things and guide it. But it's, it's hard for me to decide too many things in advance when you're dealing with I mean, every musician on this record is totally formidable personality, so for me to, to try to decide what they're going to do, I think is a huge mistake.
0: Being as, as busy as you are and involved in so many different projects, how do you kind of carve out space to just e- explore the music you're hearing inside and to, you know, to really kind of have some time with the music and your instrument and mm. composition and
1: that kind of thing? You know, my great goal is to do that more methodically. I find that deadlines are crucial for me, absolutely crucial. So um, just deciding something as simple as it's time to make another record, I want to make another double-wide record, and what will the record be? And booking the time and starting to work on it, it's a, it's it's impossible for me to focus myself on writing as much as I would like to without having kind of a clear deadline in mind. So that makes all the difference. So I, but it, to, to the extent that I'm able to sort of have that regular writing part of my life, I always feel happier. So I, I hope to continue to do it more.
0: Do you listen to a lot of music?
1: I, I think I'm very strange in that I don't and i sometimes i honestly feel really anxious about that because uh i think it's unusual i find that it's unusual and it's not i'm not i don't have any agenda about that at all it's just something like uh when i listen to music i really love it i really respond to it emotionally and i often like to give myself the space away from that uh, because i'm active in making music so much and there's something about silence that's really helpful for me i I think i mean this is all on reflecting on why it is i didn't decide not to listen to music actually i just and it certainly isn't because i don't love it it's sort of like the opposite of that it's like it it sort of consumes me and i i think when i also in the modern era there's so so much there's such a sense that you have to know so much and you have to listen to so much and, and i think it's easy for that to be to be all you do and to be consumed with that such that uh, you, you get cloudy. It gets harder to s- sit at the piano or, or how, whatever your writing process works, and just hear something. Honestly, you know, everything will end up having a reference point. That this is this kind of thing. This is from that, or this is my version of this meeting that. Or uh, I think uh, information age has its own set of problems uh, that has to do with maybe too too much, too much exposure, too much stuff. And so, something intuitive inside me sort of has. Push back against that i 'm not sure why exactly, but it, it does kind of make me feel weird sometimes everyone 's heard everything, and I sort of feel like i 'm on a weird island cave dweller or something but uh, but I love it. I love to be turned on to music I'm re- I get really excited by other people 's excitement. you know when other people are really excited about music, I, I like to be around that and, and listen to the music through their through their ears. I find that to be really great. I think this is a great time for music i think there 's tons of awesome music around. I really do. Um, can you talk about the Ice Siren? Sure. Uh, the Ice Siren was uh, the most ambitious writing project I've ever done. It was a collaboration with uh, my good friend, playwright Andy Bragan, and it was presented at the at the Jazz Gallery as a part of their large ensemble composer series. And so uh, the the criteria for this composer series was at least 11 musicians in the band and at least an hour's worth of music. So that hour could have been broken up however you wanted to it could have been you know 10 six minute pieces if you like i thought it might be a great opportunity to try to write something that was that was one piece one continuous 60 minute piece because it's you know in jazz essentially the jazz composing problem has to do with creating very small and and inspiring vehicles for improvisation you know so things that are that are, that when you play that makes you want to improvise and the, most of the music is made through the act of improvisation songs are suggestions in a way and so this was a great opportunity to really compose more and to orchestrate and have a lot more lot more instruments and so there's there's quite a bit of improvisation involved but there's a lot of it is, ri- is actually written and there was a narrative there was a story that was had a beginning and an end and it was sort of a bizarre um really bizarre love story um
0: which was spoken by someone during the performance. It was so.
1: sung. Yeah, there was two singers, uh, Miles Griffith and Gretchen Parlato. Oh, great. And we struggled some with was there a was there a narrative component that was independent of the singing itself, and after a while decided that w- it would be best for us to try to figure out how to tell the entire story just through the songs. Um, and so yeah, it's just it's hopefully you you can watch it and, and understand what's happening, but uh it's in i guess we sort of divided up into seven pieces seven movements but they're all continuous and they're segues from one thing to the next and it tells a complete story and uh it was so tremendously satisfying to to do it. It, it and uh it was also i discovered some things about how to effectively write for that for something like that which is has a whole different set of requirements um basically i just divided the composing and the orchestrating which helped a whole lot um Uh, i find that if you think sometimes too much about orchestration in the beginning you can get buried you know so i was just basically writing songs but writing melodies as we talked about before and and rhythms and forms and and um and then after i sort of had these together then i thought more about which instruments were playing what and then that helped me sort of write more things and it it turned out to be a really effective way to do it and uh, sort of did the whole thing in about three months um But it's fun because those kinds of projects, like, they hurt, actually. They almost physically hurt to do because the deadline is so intense and the work is so intense and the stress is so intense. But there's nothing more satisfying than finishing something like that and, like, seeing it it come to life. Um, And we're doing it again, actually, uh, at the Jazz Gallery on June 18th as a part of the Care Fusion Festival. Oh,
0: fantastic. had you worked with a a librettist or lyricist before on original music
1: he and i had done one other thing before so this was sort of our second sort of the evolution of our uh, collaborative relationship and the first one was a project called dreamscapes where i had him write these 12 line poems essentially but they were supposed to be descriptive or evocative of dreams and from these i tried to make little soundtracks basically but they weren't it was basically like he wrote some words and I responded to the words with music, but the words and music weren't really happening simultaneously for the most part. So for for me, it seemed like the next logical step is writing songs, you know, writing music and words that fit together. Um, and he's a playwright, so the, the next step that we're trying to figure out how to do is how to do something that's actually more dramatic and staged. Um, and tr- I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, obviously let him more take the lead. I've kind of taken the lead on both these last two, but... Um, so then, there would be music that would be in service of the of the actual staged production. So it would probably be more like a musical, maybe, at some point. And we already have a kind of cool idea about what we might do. Uh, so we're just trying to search for the funding. <laughs> I was just—that
0: was exactly what I was going <laughs> to ask you. Is what, I mean, what are the logistics of even making something like this come into being? It sounds like an incredible.
1: Yeah, the daunting part is the funding. the The, the, the rest of it can be solved fairly easily, I think. Uh, The creative part is fun there's kind of nothing that he and i would more rather be doing than something like that but the funding is tricky and uh and also also that's amazing thing about new york the personnel actually is not that difficult finding crazy people to do whatever you might imagine (laughs) in new york city is is just there's no end to it i mean your imagination is you imagine someone that can do something that you need that person will you know will be there you'll find them and they'll be ready to do it it's really amazing um so at the moment, yeah, most of it is gr- we're doing grant writing, and thankfully he's a great writer, so uh, and that's kind of our focus. Sure.
0: Well, I really appreciate you uh, coming back on the show. It's a great record, and uh, I'm so really much. happy for everything that's uh, that's going well for you, man. It's Thanks really so much. It.
1: Thanks so much. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for all you do for everyone. Thanks, John. Take
2: yeah. care.
0: John Ellis recorded here in Albany just a couple weeks back at Red Square talking about his new album Puppet Mischief. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session presented by AllaboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is also available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. My thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. You'll find them at respectsextet.com. And thanks to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. Please do go out and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.
2: Everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.